We've titled this Making the Turn. There's more than one way, or shall we say even one reason, for making a turn. We understand making a turn means something in terms of somehow a change of directions. Today, uh, fascinating to those of us who like it and enjoy it, I realize watching, I do realize this, watching golf on television can, can be like, if you don't understand it, it can be like watching paint dry. It's like, yeah, I don't think I'm going to give this a whole lot of my time. But this afternoon, as we finish up the Masters, which is one of four major championships, and they are now playing the last of 72 holes, as they move from the first nine holes, one to nine, then they transition into the very last nine holes of the game, holes 10 through 18 out of the 72 holes. As they transition there, that's called making the turn. And the point from there on is they give it all they have to try and be in first place when all is said and done. There's probably over a million dollars on the line in terms of the difference between first place and second place. It's huge. Imagine the pressure that is on them. And there will be balls that will get a favorable bounce and people will be amazed and there will be balls that will get a bad bounce and people will just be disappointed as well as the golfers. But the crowd will be in it. And when they make this turn, it's much like, although it's quiet and then they cheer and then it's quiet and then they cheer, but it's much like that, that horse race where they make the final term and they head for home and they just let it go flat out. Everything they have is concentrating on on creating a hopeful outcome. The reason for making the turn is to determine an outcome. But sometimes when we make a turn, it's really simply to confirm what has already happened. Confirm what we already know and what we've already been doing. And now it's kind of like, well, we're just acknowledging that the, that the turn has really been made, if you will. And when we come to the book of Samuel, that's what we're going to experience today, is this second idea that Israel is simply confirming where it already is. It's not creating a new outcome it's not a new decision. Now, I wanted to deal with this because I want us to understand that Samuel has an important place in the history of Israel. By the way, Stovey mentioned all the places where there's a, we can have Bible study. I'd like to remind you, we're going to be discussing this message in a different way Wednesday night right here at 645, right in this room, right in the man cave. So there's yet another Bible study that you can be engaged in and, and understand more about what we're talking about when we have said this thing of their making a turn. But when Samuel is on the scene, we are at towards the end of the time of the judges. If you were with us for the message on the judges, you know it was a very low ebb spiritually for the nation of Israel. There is that recurring phrase at the end of the book that said, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. And in that context, their spiritual and their moral behaviors just were Uh, devolving into something very, very disturbing, very, very ugly. So it is in this time of this low ebb spiritually that this man by the name of Samuel comes on the scene. And he is a miracle child. 
If you were to read the early parts of the book, which we don't have time to do, if you read them, you'd find out that uh, he is a child specifically prayed for by his mother, Hannah, who um, she, had, she had offered him to the Lord, Lord, if you'll just give me a son, I will give him back to you for service in the temple, in the tabernacle, rather, and he will, he will just be there. Uh, but please, because she was without child. And God answered that prayer, and she dedicated her son, Samuel, to the temple, and he served under a guy by the name of Eli, and uh, Eli was the, uh, the priest at the time, and he had sons who were not walking in the way of the Lord, because this is the conditions that are around there at that time, but Eli grows up, or Samuel grows up, and he has this heart to serve the Lord. And what we find is that for the first time, there's a prophetic voice that's being heard throughout the land in the, in the person of Samuel. This won't come up, but notice this. In 1 Samuel chapter 3, we had this summary statement, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no widespread revelation. But as Samuel matures, we come with this summary statement about him. Then the Lord appeared again in Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord, and the word of Samuel came to all Israel. And so that first tells us the first significant role that Samuel was carrying was that he, was, he had the role of a prophet one who received and spoke forth the, re- the revealed word of God that God wanted to be known to the nation. Because the text is pretty clear that prior to that, there was nothing on a national level that was being uh, transmitted or understood. So he was first a prophet. Secondarily, he was a judge, as the book of Judges has judges. And in, for the next few chapters... Right up until uh, chapter, the end of chapter 7, we see him in this role as a judge. And in fact, the summary statement on him beginning in chapter 7, verse 15, Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He went from year to year on a circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah and judged Israel in all those places. But he always returned to Ramah for his home was there. There he judged Israel and there He built an altar to the Lord. And so he was one judge. He ran this circuit throughout Israel, was able to manage uh, uh, the needs that were there throughout the country. And um, also, we didn't read it, but if you go back and read it, in uh, just prior to that, we find God used him to give victory over the Philistines. This time in their history, low ebb morally, low ebb spiritually, but also they weren't under pressure politically from major uh, nations like Egypt to the south or or Babylon yet or Assyria to the north and to the east. Uh, Their main, the main problems they had with other nations were the Philistines to the east and the Ammonites to the, uh, to the, uh, excuse me, Philistines to the west, pride up against the Mediterranean Sea and the Ammonites, the Amorites up uh, east of the Dead Sea. Those were their two main people, and if you look at the end of chapter 7, you find out that God used Samuel to, shall we say, hush the Philistines in a significant way, and he brought victory through him as the judge. So that's, that's Samuel in a nutshell, prophet and judge. 
dedicated his entire life, I mean, actually from being an infant, uh, to service uh, in, before God and uh, an amazing guy. Then we come to chapter 8, and chapter 8 is where they make the turn. We we're going to come back to that eventually. You were hoping for that, right? Here's where they make the turn. Now, notice, after Samuel has been listed for us, he's been judging the nation, he's just had a victory over the Philistines, um, through how, how God worked miraculously through him. We read this, chapter 8, verse 1. Now it came to pass, when Samuel was old, that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. Much like Eli before him, he was not influencing his sons effectively, or they rejected it, that they too would walk as he had walked. Then all the elders, verse 4 of, his, of verse four, all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you're old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. See, there is no king in Israel at this time. We just have these judges that God has been raising up. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. So this interesting time... When Israel says, we want to make a change, we want to take a turn, we'd like to do this a little bit differently, Samuel, because your sons aren't pulling it off, and you're kind of old. And so rather than this judges thing, which doesn't seem to give the results that we want in our nation, we'd like a king. Make us a king before you die. And Samuel's personally affronted by this. It's painful to him to hear this. That's one little thing I can understand. Yeah, there's a lot of that I don't understand, I can't identify with. But I absolutely guarantee you that there's not a pastor that doesn't suffer the pain when somebody leaves. Sometimes they'll explain why, sometimes not. Most times not, they just leave. And you're left just wondering, what didn't I do right? What could I have done right? What was my error? It's painful. It's always painful to lose people. And he's losing an entire nation who are saying to him, nope, we'd like to do this entirely differently. Now, God clarifies for him that there's nothing new here, Samuel. They're just behaving like they've been behaving. And he clarifies for him, it's not you. The problem is me that they are rejecting because they don't want me to rule over them. And when we get to verse 20, you'll see another little wrinkle. What their concern is, we need somebody to lead us into battle because everybody's got, you know, the, whatever their nations are around them, if they're not in a good treaty with them or alliance with them, you have the potential they're going to come and try and take stuff away and, you know, to haul you off. And, and all of this stuff is always possible. And they're like, we want a king. 
this, we've had enough of this judge's thing. Now, we've made a jump. We jumped from boom, boom. We saw him as a prophet. We saw him as a judge. I'd like to back up. Because in the stuff that we jumped through, there was this interesting event that took place in chapter 5. And here's what makes it interesting. See, God has said, they've rejected me. They don't want me to rule over them. But in chapter 5, we have this interesting little account which indicates that God can give victories over their enemies even if there's not one human agent involved. God will still be able to give victory over their enemies. Notice this interesting account. In the midst of when Eli was judging, and there's more there that we just don't have time to fill in, the ark got stolen by the Philistines. This is before God used, God used Samuel to, to quell the, uh, the effect of the Philistines upon the people. Here there comes a point where the ark gets stolen uh, after a battle with them, in battle in which the Israelites were defeated. Chapter 5, verse 1, we read this. Then the Philistines took the ark of God, and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, there was Dagon fallen on the face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set it in its place again. And when they arose early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the Lord before the ark of the Lord. The head of Dagon and both the palms of his feet were broken off on the threshold only. On the threshold only, Dagon's torso, only Dagon's torso was left of it. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor any who came into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. And ultimately, uh, God was going to afflict the Philistines, and then from Ashdod, they send it to another city, and from that city, they send it to another city, because God, with no Israelite involved, is afflicting the people until they eventually send on their own, they choose to send the Ark of the Covenant back. Fascinating, isn't it? This all was taking place during the time of Samuel and his role in them as a nation. I, I happen to think it's really kind of kind of a, a, almost a humorous thing. I love this little story. Okay? Dagon is the best we understand. He was a, one of the gods of the Philistines, half fish, half man. Okay? And uh, so there he is, half fish, half man. And the, the actual Philistine name for him was Fishman. That's what they called him. They called him Fishman. And Fishman was standing there. He's there. And then they, they bring in the ark, and Fishman goes on his face. And they set Fishman back up, and then they, you know, next day go and Fishman's back on his face. This time he's decapitated, his arms are off, you know. And uh, that's how he got his new name, because they kept going, this daggone thing won't stand up. <laughs> they put it back up again. I think it's a funny story. Not only a great joke, but a funny story in terms of God just humiliating them. And understand what they thought is that, that the ark was, was the God of Israel, like Fishman was their God. No. The ark was that holy place that God had identified that he would meet with them upon the mercy seat. And it was the most holy place in all of Israel. 
and you don't mess with it. And the creator God of the universe said, uh, sorry, by placing this box, the ark, with the mercy seat in front of Dagon, it sounds like uh, it makes it seem as if this fish man has defeated the God of Israel. And he's like, I'm not standing for that. But understand, no Israelites involved in this. They were not there. And God was defending his honor and demonstrating his power over the gods of the Philistines and over the people of the Philistines. And he was able to do whatever was necessary to defeat them. We need to understand that when we come to chapter 8 and they say, put a king over us so that when we go out to battle, we have assurance we're like the other nations. We want a king to lead us. No more of this thing where, you know, the judges come along and we're never quite sure. But if we had a king, then we could be sure. So, the system was working. God was protecting them. But as he had told them back in the book of Deuteronomy, back in the Exodus, he had told them, he said, look, if you're going to want me to be responding to your prayers, you've got to live in obedience to me. And that's where the system was breaking down. It wasn't the system of judges. It was every man was doing what was right in his own eye. And they were walking away from the things of God And so they rejected the system of judges, which really was rejecting God himself. So God opened the door for their request, but he said to Samuel, make sure you give them this strong warning. Picking it up in verse 9 of chapter 8. Now therefore, heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will rule over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. And he said, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his horsemen. And some will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties. Will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest and some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. And he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and servants. And he will take your male servants and And he will take your female servants, your finest young men, your donkeys, and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your sheep, and and you will be his servants. And you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. And the Lord will not hear you in that day. And he gives him solemn warning. He says, this is what kings are like. This is what kings do. Do you get that? And their response was, verse 19, nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but we will have a king over us that we may also be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And Samuel heard all the words of the people and he repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. So the Lord said to Samuel, heed their voice, And make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, Every man go to his city. So, as the narrative will continue on from here, they will get a king. 
But just as Samuel had warned them, did you catch what he was saying? When you have a king, he's going to take this, and 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 he's going to take this. And he repeated all these things that kings do that heretofore, they didn't have to give that up to a king. And they were ready to make the trade. And they were ready to say, we'll still do without having God rule over us. And so God says, okay, make him a king. And friends, here's the deal. As you follow the text through, it takes some kind of years. But by the fourth generation of kings, by the time you go from, there's a guy got the name of Saul is going to come on the scene. Then David, we'll look at David next. And then David's son Solomon, and then Solomon's son Rehoboam. And by the time we get to Rehoboam, the nation is going to split. And you know what it's going to split over? Oppressive and heavy taxation is going to divide the nation. Just like God said. This is what kings do they take, they take, they take. And they will take from you. I think it's fascinating to read that, friends, because it leaves us, I believe, a revealing and significant principle that we can set forth from the scriptures. And it is simply this when we reject God initially, We make that turn, right? Reject God initially. We sacrifice freedom eventually. When we reject God initially, we sacrifice freedom eventually. Count on it. It will happen. Now, they were already doing that. Because remember... God's account, heed the voice of the people and all that you say. They've not rejected you, they've rejected me. That I should not reign over them according to all the works which, which they have done since the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, which, which they have forsaken me and served other gods. You see, they had already rejected God. They had already made the turn. This is just formalizing it now. This is just saying, you know, we think we'd like something different. Yeah, you've been proving that for centuries that you wanted something different. Now you're finally speaking up and getting honest about it. When we reject God initially, we sacrifice freedom eventually. And friends, may I say this? When we reject God initially, it doesn't mean that we quit believing in God. We don't have to become atheists to reject God. It's just that simple twist in our thinking that says, as here, I don't think I want him to rule over me. I don't think I want his word to inform my life. I don't think I want to listen to the promptings of his spirit, which are telling me at times, hey, you know what? You ought not go there. You ought not say that. You ought not be involved in that. And it's like, I don't want to mess with that. Thank you. And we reject God initially. And we sacrifice freedom eventually. And they would be left with a government so intrusive, it splits the nation. So I want you to remember, if nothing else, remember that principle and understand it holds true for us in this day and age. Now we can think of it in many different ways. 
briefly. I mean, the temptation for me in the next number of books is to deal all with, with them all at a national level because they have so much to say to us at a national level, but I don't want to do that. Um, we will touch on it, but I, I just don't want to become a political tirade one way or another in all of this. But it does hold true for us nationally. See, because there was a number of years ago we rejected God in our public discourse. Somehow our founding fathers understood and spoke out clearly that nations are accountable to God, that nations will answer to Him. And they believed that God worked among the nations. Now you can't have that discussion. You see, we rejected God a long time ago as a nation. And what we're starting to see are the freedoms taken away from us. Freedoms that our founding fathers believed came from him. But when he's out of the picture, eh, not so much. So it's easy to speak about guns. You know, in Deerfield, Illinois, they've passed, the, the city of Deerfield now has passed legislation banning that quote-unquote assault rifle. Banned it. You're going to have to give it up with a $1,000 a day fine for keeping it. Banned it, what our, what our founding fathers thought. Now, I don't want to get into a big gun debate. What I want you to understand is we abandoned God in our discussion, and now there are those who say, we don't think you, can have the, you should have these guns at all. And they're just banning this. Okay? Hmm, interesting, isn't it? There are those who are now, if you're reading, you realize there are places on college campuses where they're starting to ban free speech. And college kids are going, yeah, we want them to ban free speech. That's what keeps us safe because the government will keep us safe. No, the government will take your liberty. Understand that. Because the government has abandoned God. And when we reject God initially, we sacrifice freedom eventually. So getting away from those two hot buttons, I just, just heard this week, there's, and I don't know if it's going to be in the theaters, you have to have watch for it on TV, but there's a movie coming out called The Little Pink House, and I referenced this in my first book, and now it's being made into a movie, and it has to do with eminent domain. And the question in the, in that the movie is asking is, do you really own what you think you own? Because there's this little... Uh, there's this little pink house up in New England somewhere where uh, somebody bought it, they redid it, they liked it, and then somebody else said they wanted that property. And about six or seven property owners right in that neighborhood said, no, we don't want to sell. Now, eminent domain, we all learned in civics class. I learned it in eighth grade. The government could come in and take your property for public use. But now, what they're claiming is, oh, it's public benefit because... A private entity wants that property. Now, it's not public. It's not like a road or a city courthouse where we all go in and say, we own this. No, this is a private entity who is using eminent domain to take the property from the little person. Big person takes property from little person, builds a bigger thing that creates a bigger tax base for it. And out of the tax base, they say, well, that's for public use because we can get more taxes off of it. And they're taking the property from the little person, something our founding fathers probably would have taken those arms that they said we get to bear and brought themselves to the courthouse to say, no, you're not going to enact that law. But that's what's happening, okay? And then we have people who want us to go, of course, they want us to go towards socialism, communism, globalism. I don't care which one of those you want. You change the system. It doesn't matter. The principle still holds. You change the system. Doesn't matter if 
We reject God initially. We sacrifice freedom eventually. And we're foolish to think that any one political party is going to somehow protect us from that. It's not happening. As long as God's not in the discussion, what is always going to happen is we're going to move towards less liberty that is ours. Always going to happen. Because why? Because power just does that. Power wants more power and more power and more power. And where does it take it from? The little people at the bottom. Well, the big people at the top all do fine. You ever wonder why somebody is even interested in globalism? The people who are pushing for that, they're going to run it. Of course, they're happy with it. They're going to run it. And you and I at the bottom, they're going to run over us, and it just won't matter. It just won't matter. So, understand it, people. It is the nature of the way things are. When we reject God initially, we sacrifice freedom eventually, but it's not our nation that I want to talk to you about. What I want you to understand is we can look at our nation and be frustrated and angry and, yeah, and all of this stuff. And it is frustrating and it does anger me. But it's also true at a personal level, friends. To understand that when we decide I'm not going to listen to God, I'm not going to let him speak into my life, I'm not going to let him inform me about my behavior, my thoughts, and the things in which I am engaged, do we understand that we're becoming a slave to the dark kingdom at that point. How would just here are some areas that I just think in terms of I want to give you one illustration and we're going to go. We can be a slave to pride, possessions, time, entertainment, hate, envy, anger, codependency, power, weakness, guilt, debauchery. We can be enslaved by all of those things if we refuse to listen to the voice of God. I got a text from Denea this week. She said, she said uh, Dad, today was the day for me to flex my manager muscles. And she had a sad emoji on it. Normally, she's got all these happy, fun emojis. And I knew what she meant because when we were there a few weeks ago, she was describing a woman that she works with who was within her department, and she knew she needed to bring in HR and start procedures towards dismissing this woman. She said, the woman is incredibly gifted as an artist. She is extremely good. She does not miss in her work. But if you wind up on her bad list in a day, everybody knows you're on her bad list, and she makes it clear. And she's destroying the team atmosphere that Danae is trying to build and trying to work with. And so when she had her review, it hadn't been long since uh, Danae had had her in for the review, um, she said the woman came in and, and they fill it out for themselves and then Denea fills it out. She said she had everything beyond expectations she was doing. And Denea was like, yeah, meets expectations, meets expectations. Everything's not beyond expectations. But Denea had to raise this question. She said there are people here that you openly and evidently just, they're on your bad list. They know it. Everyone else sees it. You need to be there needs to be some change in this area. Turns out she's already been disciplined on this issue once before. She said, I know. I hate blacks and Latinos. I hate them. Here's the crazy thing. She's a Latina herself. I don't understand that. I don't understand the hate to begin with. But she herself is Latina. She says, I know, and I don't want to change. I don't want 
to change. So this day, finally, HR got everything together, came in, told her that she was on a a certain type of leave because of this, and she left there and made it clear she has no intentions of changing the hate at all. See? Now, who's enslaved? Who's the slave? That's my question. Who's the slave? Because she, for some reason, is, I'm sure, all self-justified in the hate that she has. She can just look at somebody and hate them just by their appearance. Who's the slave? See, Jesus said that he who commits sin is a slave to sin. That's why he also, it's in the same context where he says, if the Son of Man has made you free, you're free indeed. Because we all need that kind of freedom personally, don't we? We all have things that we're holding on to that the Spirit of God would speak into our lives and say, you know what, that's enslaving you. See, because you, you rejected me initially as far as being able to speak in, into that, and you're going to sacrifice your freedom eventually. And if you can't see it yet, it's coming. Because there's a direct connection between these two. The gospel, this thing that we share, that we send people around the world with, is what? To bring freedom from these things, from the hate, the envy, the, the bitterness, the codependency, the pride. And all of these other things, the power that we feel like we need to, that we need to maintain in all of this stuff. Thank you, Karen and Crystal. Your song said, sit down and be set free. Right? That's what God calls us to, my friends. Do we grasp that? We're not going to control the nation. Uh, only if God brings revival... Will we get God back into the discourse? We maybe have hope. Otherwise, we're going to continue to lose liberty. Long term, it's happening. When we reject God initially, we sacrifice freedom eventually. We can't control the nation, but we do have a say. When the Spirit of God is prompting us that there's a place of growth and a place of freedom and a place where he says, you know what? You're not listening to me here, and if you will let me speak into that, I can set you free. And you don't have to be a slave to that sin anymore. That's where we do have a choice. And my friends, every one of us has places we need to grow. Every one of us has a growth edge where we need to become more like Christ. And that's what God wants to do. He wants to create Christ-likeness in us. And every one of us is making a decision on a regular basis. Do I reject God here? It'll mean slavery down the line. Or will I say, yes, Lord? I want to come in and I'm going to sit down and be set free because Jesus said, if the Son of Man has made you free, then you are free indeed. May God give us wisdom as we listen to his spirit where he's trying to speak to each of us individually. He says, man, I want to set you free. My dear daughter, I want to set you free that you're no longer a slave to this thing. Lord, thank you. Thank you. It's easy, Father, for us to look at Israel and, to, and to, to wag our tongues, to point a finger and say, man, did they miss it. But, Father, we are exactly the same way. And, Lord, I know in my own life, and I have no question in the lives of each one of us gathered here, there's some place where you're looking to speak deeply into our hearts. 
where we have rejected you. We've said, no, Lord, I'm not going to listen to that. No, I'm not going to follow you. No, I'm not going to yield to that grace which you want to work in my life. And we are remaining slaves, Lord. May your spirit have great freedom to reveal to us and great power to move in us that we might abandon, abandon that fight with you and be set free. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.